welcome to the Presto Music Podcast. The Hanoverian succession in 1714 marked the beginning of the Georgian era in Britain, and the same moniker could also be applied to the musical life of the nascent British state. The George in this case being, of course, George Frederick Handel, who actually settled in England two years before George I took up residence in the newly United Kingdom. Handel would initially attempt to change the musical taste of his new homeland, but would find longer-lasting success, as is so often the case, by adapting his musical style and subject matter to fit the character of his new compatriots, and by doing so would help create a British musical culture that survives to this day, at a time when international competition and conflict, both in Europe and further afield, was helping to create a new affluence and identity in Britain. So on the show today, we'll discuss how Britain shaped Handel, and how in turn, Handel shaped Britain. Making sure my wig is firmly fitted as she guides me through the cultural scene of 18th century London is someone whose commentaries for several recent Handel CD releases have greatly impressed me with their insight. When she's not busy writing sleeve notes, my guide is also a broadcaster and the Associate Professor of Music and Fellow in Music at Jesus College Oxford, with a particular interest in Handel and the construction of identity through music. Welcome to the show, Professor Suzanne Aspen. Hi Paul, thanks for having me on. Before heading across the channel, Handel wrote a series of cantatas while staying in Italy, but these dramatic pieces are far removed from Bach's edifying and devout cantatas. Can you explain the circumstances of their composition and their often extreme emotional landscapes? Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth tracking what Handel was doing in these early decades of his career. So first he moved from Halle to Hamburg, and he moved to Hamburg in order to get experience in an opera house. He was uh, a clown of a violinist, apparently, in Hamburg, but he also had the chance to compose operas there. And he was sufficiently impressive that uh, a visitor from Italy, uh, an Italian nobleman, invited him to return to Italy with him, assuring him that he would only truly polish his style in the best Italian taste if he went to Italy. I mean, I'm I'm sure it's, you know, something that musicians in general experienced in this period, the sense that if they hadn't been to Italy, they hadn't been anywhere. So Handel, however, even at this early age, in in his late teens, early 20s, demonstrated an individuality and an independence that would characterize his entire musical life. And he told the prince that he would travel to Italy on his own bottom, as it was put in Mainwaring's biography of of the composer. So Handel went to Italy. He went to several cities within Italy and spent a lot of his time in Rome. Now, Rome was in some senses a very obvious place to go because there were so many wealthy people and influential people in in Rome in the first decade of the 18th century. Um, And there were also, you know, terribly influential musicians there like Alessandro uh, Scarlatti and Antonio Caldara. So Handel naturally gravitated towards Rome, but there was one real problem with Rome and that is that it didn't have, at this time, it didn't have public performances of opera because the Pope had banned public performances of opera. Um, And partly this seems to have been to do with a a recent earthquake that had spared Rome, but uh, damaged territories around Rome. And so in sort of recognition of their delivery from the dangers of this earthquake, the Pope had said that there would be a period where there'd be no opera performance. But in general, opera was seen as obviously rather problematic, ungodly, and promoting um, all kinds of sins and vices that I I guess were encouraged or were were thought of as being connected with opera because of its association with Venice. So anyway, there was Handel in uh, in Rome, um, mixing with all the best society, but thwarted in terms of composing opera. So the cantata and the serenata were obvious alternatives. They were short scenes that were, in a sense, like operatic scenes. So a a cantata might typically have um, an alternation of recitative aria, recitative aria. Um, You would have maybe two or three arias in, in a cantata, and it would usually be a single character or sometimes two characters. Serenatas would be a little bit longer. They were like... Um, 
operatic shainers with, with a few more arias and two or three characters in them and a little bit more sense of, uh, of drama. But they were sort of situations in a dramatic narrative, moments in a dramatic narrative, rather than an entire uh, dramatic structure played out with, with seven or eight characters, which was typical for Italian opera at this time. So there were, in, in one sense, a perfect testing ground for Handel to hone his skills in operatic composition and also to demonstrate those skills to other musicians and to the nobility who were terribly taken with his performance, um, with his performances and with his composition. So uh, Handel had an opportunity, I think also one can say that because cantatas were not staged, they weren't put on in the opera house, there was a degree of emotionalism that had to come through in the music rather than in the set or in a dramatic, um, a dramatic arc uh, or in exchanges between characters. And so that sense of drama um, was terribly important to the development of Handel's musical style. And we can sample just a little bit before we head across the channel. Let's sample the ending of Lucrezia, in which the titular character vows vengeance on the underworld. Here sung by Léa de Zandre with Le Conte d'Astroy and Emmanuel Aim on Irato. And I think it's worth noting with regard to Lucrezia that, of course, this is the story of Lucrece. Um, and it takes that moment after her, her rape when she is deciding what to do, whether she is going to uh, avenge herself or how she's going to avenge herself on Tarquinius, um, and then also what she's going to do herself, feeling defiled that she's going to commit suicide. So it's a great moment of emotional tension that Handel captures in this cantata. <laughs> Well, when he did arrive in London, Handel doggedly tried to attempt to convince Londoners of the merits of Italian opera, even if in the end they never quite took to this most exotic and irrational entertainment. To what extent was the supposed rivalry between his prima donnas like Cuzzoni and Faustina the result of what we might call today media hype? This is a very interesting question. Um, Cuzzoni and Faustina are famous in terms of their supposed rivalry. Well, I think we can say actual rivalry, but, but the way in which it is presented to us, the way in which we, anyone who knows about Handel will know that supposedly Faustina and Cuzzoni came to blows on stage and were sort of having a cat fight and scratching each other's faces and pulling each other's wigs. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderfully vivid story, but it's entirely fictional. It comes from a scurrilous pamphlet that was printed in sort of 1727, 1728, just after the singers had not themselves come to blows, but uh, had provoked, as it were, such animosity between their supporters in the audience that the noise levels in the audience had been so great that the opera had to stop. <laughs> it couldn't go on. So this pamphlet was a kind of um, shifting of the blame, as it were, onto the singers. And, I, you know, I have to say, I think it says 
it's quite something about our operatic history that we've continued to perpetuate this lie right down to the 21st century rather than seeing through it. And, you know, it's very easy to see through because you look at the newspaper reports of the time and they say there was a disturbance in the audience. They don't say anything about a disturbance on stage. If there had been, they would certainly have reported it. There's no way they would have missed out a juicy bit of gossip like that. So it's, it's entirely fictional. But it was a fiction that served the opera company well, in a sense. And actually, it had a long history going back in England to the 1660s, 1670s, where you had rival theatrical stars. So this is in the spoken drama. And they also had all kinds of myths and stories perpetuated about them. And their characters on stage were then written in a way that helped to kind of generate that myth of two different personalities encountering one another on stage. And so Kutsoni comes to London in 1723. She's much praised. She's much admired. By a couple of years later, the audiences are going, oh, yes, well, all right, we've had Kutsoni. What's next? <laughs> and they get wind of this wonderful singer called um, Faustina Bordoni, who is supposed to have invented a new singing style called the Modo Faustinare. And uh, this, this singing style is much more brilliant and showy and fast and loud. And uh, various audience members who um, are members of the nobility who've been to Italy and have seen her have, have said, oh, yes, we must get Faustina over here. So there's all this media buildup over the course of about a, a year saying, oh, we're going to get Faustina over here. <laughs> and then eventually uh, Kutsoni or her supporters decide, well, I'm going to show that I'm just as good <laughs> as Faustina and include some of Faustina's music in the operas that I'm So they included some very recent Faustina arias in one of her operas just before Faustina arrived, just to kind of up the stakes a little bit further. And then when Faustina arrives, they have a series of operas that cast them as diametrically opposed character types in the same way that the spoken theatre had done before that. And we can pretty clearly say this was a product of the company rather than being primarily to do with Faustina and Cuzzoni because they previously sung together in Italy without any mention of this kind of animosity. So it was a way, I mean, if you think about it, what a brilliant way to get bums on seats. <laughs> and it plays into the stereotype of flamboyant Italians who can't control their emotions and all this sort of thing. Well, there was a superb recent release on Signum that explored this rivalry and the rivalry between Handel and his Italian compositional rivals. What have you picked from Handel's Queens with Lucy Crow and Mary Bevan? I think that it would be wonderful to hear the aria, very simple aria, that Handel wrote for Cuzzoni in her first, it was her first aria in her first Handel opera, it's Falsa Imagine in Handel's Ottone, and the story goes, and again, we don't know how true this is, that Kutsoni stamped her foot and said it's not showy enough and refused to sing it. And Handel said to her, Madam, you may be a little devil, but I am Beelzebub and I will throw you out the window if you don't see And so she sang it. And it was so extraordinarily successful. Her voice was so extraordinarily successful because, of, of course, he had written it for her voice. All composers at this time wrote for singers as if they were tailors craft, uh, creating a, a costume. You, you made it to measure. So this aria was very successful and all the court loved her and all the town loved her. Indeed, there was a fashion for wearing the same clothes as she wore in Ottone among all the young ladies. So I think that's the perfect aria to start with for Cuzzoni. And then for Faustina, since she was particularly known for the new Italian singing style, I thought it would be good to hear something by Nicola Porpora, who was one of Handel's, as it were, chief rivals in London and a famous proponent of the Neapolitan uh, musical style. And this aria, Son Prigionera d'Amore from Poro, demonstrates Faustina's much more brilliant vocal technical style. Let's first hear Lucy Crowe pretending to be Cuzzoni, and then Mary Bevan doing her best Faustina impersonation. <laughs> 
That remark by Samuel Johnson that opera is an exotic and irrational entertainment is still much discussed within the context of opera in Britain. What often isn't mentioned is the full quote, which I gather continues, which has always been combated and always has prevailed. Do you think it was meant pejoratively at the time, or was it just a simple statement of fact? Uh, it's pejorative. It's, def <laughs> it's, def it's definitely pejorative. It's definitely pejorative. Um, and I say that because Italian opera, this, the, the kind of Italian opera that Handel was eh, not exactly writing in the vein of, but sort of writing in the vein of, was known as opera seria. So this is the dominant strain of Italian opera for the whole of the 18th century. And it had been invented, it had been cooked up um, by various reformers, particularly reformers in Rome, actually, in the Arcadian Academy in the 1690s, and was seen as a riposte to the kind of Venetian opera of the earlier decades in, in the 17th century, which had lots of gods and supernatural characters and magic and comic characters and casts of 30, I was going to say casts of thousands, but not that, <laughs> casts of thousands, obviously. Casts of 30, um, between 20 and 30 people, lots of cross-dressing, lots of disguise, lots of misrecognition. Um, and that sort of thing was seen as bringing Italian culture into disrepute. And so in the 1690s, the Arcadian Academy and others crafted this new purged operatic genre, which was colloquially known as opera seria. They called it drama per musica, which had six or seven characters. They were all heroic or noble. So they were all kings or queens or princes or um, battle heroes. And the stories were entirely serious. So they were almost entirely about um, really the kind of pivotal moment in a young nobleman's development where he has to choose between love and honor. And the whole opera is concerned with that choice. And of course, in the end, he chooses honor and it's very difficult. And then he gets the girl in the end as well. So it, they always have a happy ending, but it's all very serious and decorous, unlike the earlier Venetian opera. So for that reason, I think that um, Italians, although they were also critical of opera and critical of opera singers getting all the, the attention, they would have said, well, you know, the plots are very serious. Um, and the chief, uh, chief exponent of Italian opera writing, who was Pietro Metastasio, was extraordinarily famous, at least as famous, if not more famous, than any composer in the 18th century. And everyone had copies of his libretti and would read them as poetry. So he wrote beautifully and he wrote these really powerful stories about um, this choice between love and honour. So uh, for fans of Italian opera, it was definitely a rational entertainment, not an irrational one. Well, eventually Handel moved away from the opera to the oratorio. Was this for artistic reasons or simple financial expediency? This is an interesting question. Um, it was, I think we can say initially, particularly for financial expediency, which is to say that Handel um, in, in the 1730s encountered quite a difficult period. He encountered rivals. Um, there was a rival opera company set up, which we know today as the Opera of the Nobility, but at the time was often called Senesino's Company, named for the leading castrato who broke away from Handel in some annoyance. So um, the Opera of the Nobility provided all the kind of current operas, the Porpora and the Hassa and the Vinci that audiences claimed to want. And that led to a drain on Handel's audiences, but actually also just, you know, the city wasn't big enough to sustain two opera companies. So yes, Handel found himself falling out of popularity and needing to appeal to a new audience, a non-noble audience, realising actually that there were a whole lot of people in London who had enough money to enjoy themselves, to come to the theatre, to come to musical theatre, who weren't really being catered for. And so he actually said in the 1730s, I'm going to write something for the wealthy sits, which means the wealthy citizens, but a sit in... Um, 
in the 18th century was a, a, a sort of designation associated with the merchant class. So it was very much a commercial ambition to write something that would capture a new market. But it was also in response to what a, a lot of people around him were saying and had actually been saying since he'd arrived in England in 1711, which is, please write in English. Please write something in our native tongue. Write something our, um, you know, ordin ordinary people can understand and enjoy. This was, of course, an age before surtitles. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that our auditoria were lit and habitually people who went to the opera would take along their little libretto, which would be, I mean, your libretto book would be about the size of your hand or smaller. And so you could just carry it in a pocket and then open it and read along. And so uh, there were lots of people who did that. It, 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 the the um, libretto in England would have the Italian on one side of the page and then on the facing page, you'd have the English translation or a kind of English transliteration. Just, just like our CD booklets do today. Yeah, just like <laughs> CD booklets. Thank goodness for CDs. <laughs> well, could the cause of the Israelites, a source material for many a Handel Oratorio, be seen as a loose allegory for the political situation in the early 18th century, with Protestant Britain being viewed by themselves, of course, as God's chosen people, competing imperially with the Catholic powers in Europe? Yes. Now, this is... A actually an interesting concept called translatio imperi, which is to say a concept that actually went throughout the 18th century and into the 19th century, uh, and in fact, throughout earlier centuries as well, that the might of empire transferred itself from decadent Italy, first from Greece to Rome, and then from Rome to other powers in Europe, and then, of course, from Europe to America. And so this idea that you could only have one great empire at a time. Well, although the British didn't see themselves as imperialists necessarily in the 18th century, they didn't have an empire as such, nonetheless, they aspired to capture that kind of greatness of ancient Republican Rome. And you can see that that model of translatio imperi also applying to the idea of the Israelites, of God's chosen people, that that also moves from Judea to Rome, the founder of the, the, the sort of papal state. And then after Britain separates or after England separates under Henry VIII from the papacy, there's this sense that the Protestant countries and in this instance, specifically Britain, specifically England, are claiming that mantle of religious authority. And it's a very powerful thing in a country or indeed, you know, across Europe and in, in countries where one wants to claim some kind of kinship with the Bible and with biblical peoples to look at stories from the Old Testament and the New Testament and say, look, we can see that happening here in, in this land. Actually, it's probably most famous to um, your English listeners in Jerusalem. You know, that very idea that Britain is a modern Jerusalem. So uh, that's a sort of slightly later version of it, but you get that as well in Handel's oratorios. And it would have been particularly powerful. The oratorios would have been particularly powerful and resonant for Handel's audiences because they had exactly those stories presented to them every Sunday in sermons. You know, the, the sermon would say, look at what happened in ancient Israel and now look at what is happening in modern Britain and let's see those parallels. And of course, that, that notion of drawing parallels from the ancient to the modern was already present in the Bible itself, where you had the Old Testament with parallels to the New Testament. So, so they were just continuing that tradition. And this was, this was not something Britain had a, um, a, any kind of um, uh, monopoly on. This was the sort of thing that was done all across Europe at the time. Everyone looked for these patterns of biblical reference. And the oratorio, the Handelian oratorio, is just part of that culture of creating reference and creating resonance. It's certainly also worth saying that 
given that Britain in the first half of the 18th century in particular constantly felt itself challenged by a Catholic threat, in particular by the threat from, from the Jacobites, from then Bonnie Prince Charlie in, in 1745, all of those things created an atmosphere of fear and therefore an atmosphere of nationalism. You know, national, nationalism, the inculcation of nationalism comes from that sense of rivalry with a hostile external force. So that was very much present while Handel was writing his oratorios. Absolutely. And one of the most, most popular oratorios was Judas Maccabeus, featuring the famous chorus, See the Conquering Hero Comes, which, while ostensibly refers to the victory of the Jewish people over the Seleucid Empire, contemporary audiences wouldn't have had difficulty in identifying the chorus with the brutal quashing of the Catholic Jacobite rebellion, as you mentioned, by the Duke of Cumberland, even if the Duke was hardly a godlike youth. Here performed by the NDR Corps and the Festspiel Orchestra Göttingen, conducted by Lawrence Cummings. Was a factor in the popularity of the oratorio form due to it being seen as a British art form, just as British identity was being formed. As you mentioned, the language was in the vernacular, and it combined the narrative opera with a moral message and the opportunity for mass participation through Handel's famous choruses. Oh, now, I think we've got to be careful with that one, <laughs> because mass participation in the choruses is something that we could associate with the 19th century. And the 19th century, actually, the oratorio is so interesting because it really does become an expression of empire. And this is when you have, you know, the building of the Crystal Palace in the mid 19th century with the 1851 exposition and um, and the sense that that's there to house these these massive performances where you would have 5000 singers coming from all over England. And the reports would say you know, this is possible because of the might of British industrialization. We have trains all across the country and people are able to get on the trains and come to sing in Handel's oratorios. Um, and they would say, you know, uh, we have uh, drums with um, the kettle drums are covered with the skins of African elephants. Um, you know, that that sort of thing. They, they'd have things from all around the empire and say, this shows the might of Britain. So, yeah, that was very, very strong, that sense of um, the voice of the collective in the 19th century. And probably that started with the commemoration, the Handel commemoration in 1784, which had a massed chorus in Westminster Abbey and everyone responded to that by using language of the sublime and saying how awe-inspiring it was. So that would have started the vogue for large performances. But in Handel's day, the choir he used was the choir of, um, well, a, a, an assembled set of choristers from the cathedrals. So male voices, uh, women, I think, came in singing in, in the provinces rather more. But uh, he also, in his early oratorios, used a mix of English singers and it, his Italian opera singers. And indeed, would sometimes the, the Italian opera singers wouldn't be able to sing the parts in English and they'd end up singing in Italian. Those, those singers tended not to stay in the country very long. Uh, not that they were chased out. It's just that they weren't as successful as the singers who made the effort to learn the language and could sing in English. So that sense of the 
immediacy of being able to convey the moral message of the oratorio because the language is your native tongue is really important. And we can hear that Handel is very careful to make the text audible, to make sure that people can hear the text. And he also chooses the text or his librettists choose the texts very carefully to select things that would have been familiar from the Bible to the listeners. I mean, really, sometimes the libretto, the librettos that are assembled are extraordinarily complex. They draw, you know, a passage from here and a passage from there, from all across the Bible, um, including texts that Handel himself had a hand in. So, uh, so there's a sense of the sort of religious commitment and proselytizing zeal of the librettists and the composer and the way that that would then appeal to the audience. I imagine Handel could have had no idea that his works would have been performed on this colossal scale. I can't imagine who ever would have conceived that 5,000 singers would be singing his choruses one day. No, and I can't imagine he would have liked it particularly uh, either. I mean, he might well have said, oh, well, if it brings in extra, (laughs) I'm all for it. I'm I'm not sure. But, um, But the practice, the vogue, as far as we can tell, in the 18th century was to go for smaller numbers. Because as anyone will know who has sung in a choir, a choir is only as good as its worst singer. (laughs) So, you know, the smaller the choir is, the more reliable it is. It's perhaps a testament to the genius of these works that they do somehow work either performed in the period performance that we're now familiar with and in these big Thomas Beecham-esque sing-alongs. Yep, that's true. That's absolutely true. Well, Saul is undoubtedly one of Handel's most dramatic oratorios depicting the downfall due to jealousy of King Saul after David slayed Goliath. And it's perhaps remarkable that King George II was in attendance of a work critical of unrestrained royal prerogative, here made explicit in the Act 1 aria Capricious Man in Humour Lost, sung by Elizabeth Atherton with the Sixteen and Harry Christophers. Perhaps, Suzanne, making the point that unlike those absolutists across the Channel, Britain was a constitutional monarchy quite happy to dispose of monarchs, as they have done twice in the past century. Oh, yes, maybe. I mean, I think it's also worth bearing in mind that for your religious British audience, David was the true king. So Saul demonstrated his, um, his lack of fitness for rule not only in his kind of gradual descent into madness and his inability to control his anger, but also, of course, in his consulting the Witch of Endor. Um, Handel writes wonderful music for that, though. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, you know, this is, is, of course, going back to that sense of supernaturalism that you had in 17th century opera. And it just opens the opportunity for much more varied and colourful dramatic settings, which is also what you see in in Handel's um, Handel's operas from just uh, slightly earlier than Saul. So you, or around the same time as Saul, I should say. So you get uh, you know similar wonderful music in Alcina, um, for example, or in Orlando. So Handel exploited the magic, even while at the same time really being on the side of King David. <laughs> Yes, in the sense we can enjoy the uh, music, the supernatural music, so long as the fact that these characters are punished for this. It, absolutely, yes, absolutely. And it's it's a guilty pleasure for the audience. Yes, well, I mean, I, I 
Yes, I, I think that you're probably right. I think it probably is a bit of a guilty pleasure because there was this sense in this period that music was inherently quite dangerous, that it could sway the emotions in ways that needed to be kept restrained. And the way in which you restrained it was by attaching it to words and in particular to a moral message. So that, yes, you might have this moment of... Um, of uh, allowing your emotions to be swayed, but then you'd bring it all back under control again with the kind of moral confirmation. And of course, it, it, in a way, you know, Handel saves his best music for the most powerful choruses uh, of the Israelites. It, does this all start to play into a narrative that was starting to be created about British exceptionalism, both politically and culturally, a view that was perhaps vindicated when Britain achieved its annus mirabilis of 1759, confirming its status as the dominant world power, which was coincidentally the year of Handel's death? That's an interesting one, British exceptionalism. I guess that that is true, even in the 18th century. I mean, certainly a sense of separation from Catholic powers. And since they were the dominant powers on continental Europe, it is the case, I, I think, that one could say that Britain was the most powerful Protestant country in Europe in the, in the 18th century, certainly by the later 18th century. But there was still always this sense of threat, you know, threat from France, very powerful. And of course, you know, in a sense, you know, I think for Britain it was particularly difficult, or for the British it was particularly difficult, because they owed the French so much. You know, the French, <laughs> as it were, kept Charles II safe during the interregnum. And then Charles II comes back to Britain with his Frenchified ways, <laughs> and uh, as, as, the, as the British um, saw it, and they really did, see, or the English saw it, and they really did see it that way. And that you know, was the occasion of quite a bit of resentment. Um, and so it built from there. I mean, I, I think that in the 18th century, that sense that France had really been highly influential in the 1660s and 1670s, and to, for the French to see that decline in influence in some ways must have been galling, pun intended. Um, <laughs> and Yes, then the British, the strength of Britain in imperial terms in, in the Americas, you know, there were, there were wars going on, not proxy wars, but wars between the French and the British going on throughout this period in the Americas. And then, of course, with the people who were British colonists, but then became North Americans, citizens of, the, of as it later became the United States, um, the American colonies, in the in the, the the sort of 1770s and and so on so that sense of exceptionalism was always under threat but undoubtedly was also shaped during this period by their encounters with the other and not just the continental catholic other but also and it's really important to say this with with the african other you know, in this period, part of the reason why the, the fighting between Britain and France was so intense was because there was so much money at stake in the slave trade. You know, in the 16th century, Portugal and Spain had dominated the slave trade. By the 18th century, Britain and France dominated the slave trade. And uh, they got wealthy off the back of it and off also obviously off the back of all the things that slave labor in the Caribbean and in, and in southern North American uh, produced. Well, if Saul was popular with Georgian audiences, sadly Theodora, considered by Handel to be one of his favourite compositions, fell on deaf ears. Suzanne, the eponymous hero of the oratorio, Theodora, is far removed from the one-dimensional women often portrayed in the early Italian cantatas. How do you feel Handel's depiction of his female characters changed in the course of his career, both in the depiction of the title character and her fellow Christian, Irene? Yes, and I'm not so sure that his characterizations in his in his cantatas was one-dimensional. I think it was limited by the fact that he was writing cantatas. But if you look at some of his, uh, if you look at his early operatic writing, if you look at a character like Essilena in Rodrigo, with extraordinarily beautiful music, 
you know, there is a sort of suggestion that Handel writes particularly well for women, for female characters, perhaps in part um, because they have, they were assumed, women were assumed in the 18th century to be more emotionally volatile than men. And so it was acceptable to write this wider emotional range. Um, although then, you know, uh, into the 18th century, in the 1720s in particular, Handel does write quite emotional male characters as well for Senesino in particular, um, which Senesino didn't necessarily like, but that's another story. But uh, Handel's uh, sort of sympathy with his female characters, which comes through so strongly in those operas named after women, such as Alcina, and then of course, in uh, in Theodora as as an oratorio rather than an opera, an opera is probably partly to do with that sense of it being okay to linger on female vulnerability and emotional volatility in a way that it wasn't quite okay to linger on uh, male vulnerability and volatility. So I think that we can also say that that shift in you know a, a sort of the period between Alcina and uh, Theodora is very much also to do with the fact that it's an oratorio. And so it's a, a, a deeply, the, the character of Theodora and the character of Irene are both for Handel about deeply felt spiritual issues. And that sense, actually, uh, in the way that we've just been discussing, that sense of resistance to a kind of greater religious power and carrying through one's belief in a particular kind of purity of religious expression uh, and, and actually quite a Protestant religious expression, not one that, that necessarily entirely reflected the behavior of the early Christians. Um, that's really important for the success of the oratorio. But as you say, um, the audiences weren't particularly, particularly fond of it. I think the suggestion was at the time that Theodora was a bit too virtuous for the ladies. But, uh, you know, it, it wasn't just the ladies who went to oratorio, it was the gentlemen <laughs> as well. So I don't think, uh, I think that tendency to blame women for not being moral <laughs> enough to accept the lesson of Theodora it anticipates, uh, I'm hesitant, hesitant to say this, but in a way it anticipates what happens in 19th century opera when the female heroines almost always die at the end of, at the, end of the opera rather than being happily married as in 18th century opera. And that was a reflection, I think, on a kind of um, ideological resistance to powerful women. And maybe then Handel representing this in, in 18th century oratorio was very difficult for audiences to take. Well, Irene's devout aria Defend Her Heaven is here sung by the much-missed Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson with the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment conducted by Harry Pickett on Avi. behaviour was generally expected of heroes and heroines in Georgian England? Hmm. Um, heroes were expected to be heroes, <laughs> you know, uh, and heroines were, heroines were much more versatile actually in some ways, uh, but, but he heroes were expected to go through this turmoil of love versus honour and to always come down on the side of honour. 
you know, in a sense, we have it, we still have it today. You know, if you think about the press scrutiny and press criticism of Harry and Meghan and the fact that Harry has, as it were, chosen love and chosen to go off to the States, um, that, that kind of valorization of duty or of honor uh, is still present in an attenuated way in contemporary society. But anyway, in the 18th century, it was very strong, that sense that, that one had to, particularly if you were noble, actually in, in many senses what distinguished you as noble was your ability to make a hard decision and put aside love in favour of duty. And it's always the characters who are represented as heroic are always sort of late adolescent males. You know, they're just coming into maturity, into manhood, and the lesson that we have to learn through them is the importance of self-sacrifice. So uh, that's the hero. The heroines can be more versatile. So they, they are allowed to um, uh, give everything up for love because that's what women are expected to do. Um, but they are also allowed to, and you see this not actually so much in Handel operas, but in the operas of some of his contemporaries, the heroines are allowed to say, uh, no, I'm going to, I'm going to be the honorable one and to uh, kill myself, as in the case of Lucrezia, which might be the only form of honor available, although it's not a Christian thing to do, or to go into battle on behalf of my family, that that's also a possible representation. But heroines in, in Handel's operas tend not to be so proactive, at least in the London operas, as, uh, as the men in achieving that final battle between duty and honour, although they also perform a very interesting role. And then, of course, in the oratorios, you have characters ranging from Iphis, Jephthah's daughter, who's really just a cipher for female virtue. Um, she doesn't have much of a voice of her own, through to Theodora and Ir Irene, who do have a significant sense of personal agency. Well, the Georgian cognoscenti would have sampled Handel's music in the theatre, portrayed by their heroes and heroines, that Man on the Clapham Omnibus, or his 18th century equivalent, may have first been exposed to Handel and his contemporaries' music outdoors. What were the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens, and what sort of music making took place there? The Vauxhall Gardens were a creation of the 1720s, really, and they're, they're a really interesting expression of urban nostalgia for rural life. So this is a period when, um, and there's this wonderful sort of wonderful graphics um, available online about what happens in this period in terms of the growth of London. So that by the end of the 18th century, London is an absolutely massive city. It eclipses um, every other European city uh, and also other cities around the world. But, you know, with that, with people moving from rural areas to the cities, there also comes this nostalgia for rural life. And Vauxhall Gardens is the first in um, a number of pleasure gardens in London. Ranley is also very successful and very famous. Um, but there were lots of smaller ones as well that people could go to within the urban environment and pretend that they were in the countryside. And it's so uh, beautifully, it was so beautifully constructed with walks of trees and trompe l'oeil so that you wouldn't see the city surrounding it and you would have dinner and supper boxes. And as part of all of this kind of aesthetic of a rural environment within a city, you also had music that was designed to express and to capture pleasures of the rural life. So lots of beautiful pastoral cantatas, pastoral airs, often things that are attributed to or associated with areas of the country that were more far flung. So you'd have Scottish songs, for example, if you really wanted to get rustic. And, and these would be sung in a, a kind of bandstand, a rotunda, in the most popular part of the uh, of the gardens near the supper boxes so you could sit and have your supper and listen to the evening concerts Handel's music was performed there 
but so were lots of other composers, including lots of English composers. So English composers who perhaps couldn't get much of a look in on the operatic stage could get their music heard in Vauxhall and heard by actually a much wider range of society than in the Opera House. So because Vauxhall prices were, I think it was a shilling for entry um, initially, and, you know, respectable sort of lower middle class people, working class people could afford to go. And then they would encounter some of this music. The fireworks music was also um, uh, given, as it were, a first trial in Vauxhall Gardens before being performed in its sort of celebratory and royal context. And you picked something from Thomas Arne that may have been heard in the Vauxhall Gardens to sample. This is Thou Soft Flowing Avon, sung by Emma Kirkby, and this is on Hyperion. The music heard at the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens is perhaps similar to Giuseppe Verdi's famous remark that he must give something to the organ grinder. A lot of these tunes would have been heard uh, and enjoyed, though, even though they were first played in the theatre. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, and something like Thou Soft Flowing Avon is to celebrate, was written by Arne to celebrate uh, Shakespeare. So there's a sense in the uh, mid-18th century, of a very conscious development of a, a kind of repertoire of national music and national artistic figures. So obviously Shakespeare is a particular figurehead, so is Chaucer, so is Milton, and there's a, stat there's a, a bust of Milton in, in Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens, there's a statue of Handel in Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens, and this is also the period when you get those kinds of figures being put into what's known as Poet's Corner in Westminster Abbey as well. So yes, there's a desire to build up for a broader British public a sense of pride in and knowledge of what it is to be what it is to be British. Don't forget, this is also when Samuel Johnson writes his dictionary. So that kind of education is going on in multiple ways. It's the beginning of what we would call a canonisation, I guess. Yes, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when congratulated on the fine entertainment of Messiah, Handel famously remarked, My Lord, I should be sorry if I only entertain them. I wish to make them better. Do you consider Handel an enlightenment figure? And if so, is that only actually applicable to his later oratorios and not his early cantatas and operas? Yes, I think that part of the issue here is the question of what we define as enlightenment. We used to talk about the enlightenment as a singular thing. These days we talk about multiple enlightenments and sometimes they were contradictory, which is why, partly why we talk about them in multiple ways. Handel's desire to make his audiences better, to improve them, however, is not necessarily a product of enlightenment thinking. It was a justification for the arts going back many centuries. After all, in an environment where quite often there was hostility to the arts from the church in particular, or a suspicion that the arts were were dangerous, you know, acting was seen as lying, music could distract people from paying proper attention to God, all of that kind of thing. And, and of course, in, in the 16th century, you had the ultimate expression of that with Calvinism. Um, so there was always an anxiety, uh, at least until the 19th century, amongst artists to prove that their art had, had real merit. It's kind of like the equivalent today of proving that art has a kind of health benefit 
or a psychological benefit. You know, it's not good enough for it just to be an expression of culture and identity. It has to, it has to do something that has monetary or moral worth in society. So, so I think there's a little bit of that in Handel's anxiety, but I, you know, I, I think that also artists absorbed and really felt that. They really did feel that um, their art forms were designed to improve people. And that's as true of opera seria as it is of the oratorio. Well, we could hardly discuss Handel without having an excerpt from Messiah. Here is Naira Buke has broken his heart, sung by Anthony Rolf Johnson, uh, the English Baroque soloist, uh, Monteverdi Choir, conducted by Sir John Elliot Gardner on Phillips. While Handel's oratorios have always been popular, it's perhaps been only relatively recently that his operas have enjoyed a renaissance. Do you feel this is partly due to an increasingly secular culture that is now perhaps more interested in interpersonal relationships than religious and philosophical ideas? I, d I don't know about that. I mean, I think that we are still very interested in religious and philosophical ideas, but perhaps we want to see them applied in ways that work personally. The revival of Handel's operas is a fascinating phenomenon and undoubtedly springs from the early music revival. So we need to see it in that context, even if now the operas are, are becoming a little bit more mainstream in terms of the kind of or orchestra and indeed the kinds of voices that perform them. So we've heard We've heard Emma Kirkby, we've heard Tony Rolf Johnson. They were sort of seminal figures in the early music revival and also in the revival of early opera. And it's really interesting that, you know, if you say Emma Kirkby to my students, they'll, they'll say who? They've got absolutely <laughs> no idea if they are themselves early musicians. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, absolutely true. Sad, sad to say. Um, so, so I think that there's a, actually in some ways, the bigger issue that you might connect it to is our own sense of nostalgia for a lost past. And the revival of Handel's operas can in, in some senses play into that, even if we end up doing it in very modernist stagings. But I think it's also just a sort of this commercial hunger. We know you liked his oratorios, but have you tried his <laughs> operas? <laughs> yes, he's a very good brand name, isn't he, to sell? <laughs> uh, well, it, actually, you know, if you think about what happened in the in the nineteen eighties with the CD revolution, um, which undoubtedly provided a massive boost to the recording industry, and everyone switched from buying uh, rep they replaced their LPs with CDs. Um, and then, of course, there's a sort of, well, what's next? <laughs> and part of what's next is actually what's happening now is the release of Vivaldi operas. And they're also, you know, fascinating uh, pieces of music, but partly, I would imagine, being released to sort of keep that industry going. And of course, the way these are marketed these days with singers once again becoming much more uh, the brand that, you know, you buy a CD of a particular singer, not necessarily of a particular composer. Yes, I think that's also true. And, and you can see that uh, too in the, in the growth of favourite arias. So the very fact that we've had a recording of the rival singers of Kutsoni and, um, and Faustina featuring their arias rather than a particular opera. Uh, and you can e equally get collections of arias for Farinelli mm. or for other great singers is, is really fascinating. Yeah. 
Well, thank you very much, Suzanne. Are there currently any exciting projects you've got that you'd like to mention? Well, I'm not sure about exciting. I am working on a book on um, national, the expression of national identity in 18th century British music. It seems more timely than ever, yeah. frankly. Fantastic. Well, that's exactly why I brought you on to discuss this. I look, greatly look forward to when that is released. And while discussions about British identity have certainly been legion over the past five years and they show no sign of abating anytime soon, I doubt any will have as fine a soundtrack as we've had today. I have to thank my producer, Matt Groom, and I have to thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.